Good morning, church. Let's go to prayer together. Father, I feel afresh what your word says when it says, apart from you, we can do nothing at all. Lord, I acknowledge this morning that apart from your strength and the power of your spirit, Lord, I can bear no fruit, and and there will be no fruit that will come from this word being preached. And so, Lord, would you bless the preaching of the word in the deepest sense, Lord? Would you take it deep into our hearts? And Lord, I know that one of the ways we'll know that this word has gone deep into our hearts, is that you will give a desire to your people, a growing desire to want to draw all attention to Jesus Christ. Lord, would you give us that heart desire? Would you deepen that in us this morning, a longing to live for your glory, a longing to give you the credit, a longing to see you move in power in our lives in a way that points many, many people to the good news about Jesus the Christ. Lord, that's our desire this morning. But we know our desires, they can wax and wane and they can grow cold. And so, Lord, warm our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit. Leave impressions upon us this morning that will leave us changed and more fully conformed into the image of your Son. We pray these things confident that you hear us and that you will act and that you will act for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. There's a word that I've become fond of as we've been walking through this sermon series in the book of Acts, and that word is the word spectacle. The reason I've liked it is because it seems to capture an idea that has shown up with a lot of repetition as we've walked through the book. So what is a spectacle? You'll remember that a spectacle is an event or it's a scene that impacts us. It leaves an impression on us, maybe in a simplified way. A spectacle is an attention grabber. I like to illustrate it um, by pointing at something like uh, the burning bush. Moses is walking along the way. He sees a bush that's on fire, but it's not being consumed. So he is drawn into it. It's a spectacle that grabs his attention. He's drawn into it, and he's brought to a place where he can hear what God wants to say to him. That's what spectacles do, especially in the book of Acts. Remember, Um, Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, that was a massive spectacle there where God pours out his spirit on these early followers and they are speaking in tongues, actual languages, and people are coming from all throughout the known world and they're hearing the mighty acts of God in their own native tongue. And they're blown away. They have lots of questions. It's drawn their attention in and then Peter preaches the gospel to them. Remember in chapter 3 where... Peter heals um, the lame beggar that's been sitting outside the temple for a long time. People have seen him and frequented the temple for so long and have walked past him so many times. And that day, this man is up on his feet, leaping, rejoicing because he was healed. It created a spectacle. Everybody was drawn to it. And Peter then preached the gospel. The apostles did many signs and wonders And the point of all of them was to draw attention to the good news about Jesus Christ who died and rose again. That was the point of all the spectacles. And in our passage this morning, we get to see two different spectacles in two different towns with the same results. Okay, Two different spectacles, two totally different towns, but with the same results. 
Look at the first spectacle with me. A spectacle in Lydda. Look at verses 32. I'll start in verse 32. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. Now, Lydda is a small town northwest of Jerusalem, 20 plus miles. And uh, anytime we're kind of getting, given one of these uh, geographical tags here, like a town name or something like that, it's good for us to think about it in light of our key verse in the book of Acts. Do you remember what that key verse is? Acts 1.8. Acts 1.8. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria to the ends of the earth. So when we talk about Lydda, where are we? in the spread of the gospel in the book of Acts. Well, we're out of Jerusalem, and now we're in Judea and Samaria in that region. And then when we turn the corner into chapter 13, it's going to move out to the ends of the earth. But here we're in that kind of middle region still, and that's kind of what's being signaled to us there. This small town is going to become the site of the first spectacle. Verse 33 There he, that is Peter, found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. I love that. Verse 33, Peter found Aeneas. God has a way of leading his servants to where needs are. God has a way of doing that with his people. And we know of Aeneas that he's been paralyzed for eight years, bedridden for eight years. And one can't help but wonder, what was the cause of his paralysis? What's this man's story? I mean, he wasn't paralyzed from birth. And so it seems like a reasonable assumption that he had some kind of accident happen to him that caused his paralysis. We don't know the details of his story, but I think we could rest assured that those in that small town that he lived in, they knew the details of his story. They knew what Aeneas is like before the accident, and they know what his life has become after the accident. They have a pretty good window into what his life has been like for the last eight years. People would have known all about what was happening. And as I was meditating on this passage, I couldn't help, as I was trying to get my mind around Aeneas and his situation and what it would have been like for him to experience some accident that's led to paralysis and him to be bedridden after being a man of strength for eight, you know, uh, before that time and now for the last years being debilitated. And my mind went to the story of a person that I'm sure many of you uh, know the name, Johnny Erickson Tata. I couldn't help but think about her. I read a book by her this last year and was so moved thinking about her experience. And her, his, her story kind of goes like this. One careless dive into the water when she was 17 years old left her a paraplegic or quadriplegic. She went from being strong and athletic to weak and needing help for even the smallest of tasks. She couldn't turn over to avoid bed sores by herself, at least. She could not bathe herself. She couldn't scratch an itch. She could not blow her own nose, brush her own teeth, None of those things overnight could she do by herself. Overnight, she went from being able-bodied and capable to being debilitated and utterly dependent. And she has spoken and written 
about those dark days that she experienced after her accident. I was deeply moved reading about it and trying to think about life from her shoes. I mean, even from the moment of the actual accident, I mean, she was literally conscious through the entire thing. So she dives into the water and she can't move at all. She's going to drown. And she's hoping that her sister is going to notice her. All of that. I mean, how traumatic to actually be just thinking and going, I can't move anything, you know. And then to be brought to the hospital thinking, oh, you know, surely my body is going to rebound, only to be told that she's going to be a quadriplegic for the rest of her life. She talked about just how depressing those early days were, how she would have done almost anything in those early days to take her own life. She was utterly depressed. She was bitter. She was not pleasant to be around for quite some time. It was so humiliating. I mean, she's 17 years old and the flower of her youth, ready to go off to college, you know, take life by the horns, and all of a sudden she can do nothing. She was humiliated, having to be waited on hand and foot and put in such a vulnerable position. And not only was it humiliating, it was also frustrating. I mean, everything about the process and what she had to go through and starting rehabilitation, it was a maddening process. But it wasn't just her life that got flipped upside down. Her entire family and friends and her support structure, imagine what that meant for them. So I think about Johnny's life, and then I think about Aeneas and what he went through. But not just him, his family, his friends. Everything was upended because of whatever happened to him that brought about this paralysis. Could you imagine a little bit of what these last eight years have been like for Aeneas? Until the day that Peter arrives in Lydda and finds him. Look at verses 33 and 34. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. We're going to build to that. But he found Aeneas, and note this, there's no record here of Aeneas asking for anything from Peter. He doesn't ask for anything at all. He doesn't have to. Peter's already eager to act. And notice that Peter prefaces the healing that's about to take place with a very clear and blunt admission. Jesus, the Messiah, is the one who heals you. Jesus, the Messiah, is the one who heals you. It's just like in chapter 3, after he healed the lame beggar, right, and created a spectacle. He, before he preached, wanted to say something loud and clear to everybody. He wanted everybody to know that it wasn't by his power or his piety that that man was standing before them well. It was through the power of the crucified and resurrected Lord Jesus the Christ. He wanted everybody to know that. Peter had a track record of wanting to draw attention to Jesus Christ. He didn't want to take the credit, even for many mighty things that God had done through him. If you think about it, in the book of Acts, we do get wowed by the miracles that happen, but compared to the amount, the sheer amount of miracles that happen, only a few of them are recorded. Peter did many things that were not recorded here in the scriptures, and Peter wasn't spending all of his time making a really big deal out of the spectacles that came from these things, but he spent all of his time making a big deal of Jesus Christ. That's what mattered to him 
was that people's attention was drawn to Jesus Christ. That is what it was all about for Peter. And so with that big preface out of the way, it's not me healing you, it's Jesus healing you. He turns to Aeneas again, and he says this, verse 34, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. This is stunning. You have to slow down and consider that this actually happened. He said, make your bed. I love this. He didn't just ask. He commanded him to do something that he could not, was totally incapable of doing on his own. Grasp that. He commanded him to do something that he could not do. Imagine someone coming into Johnny Erickson Tata's house after her accident being like, Johnny, make your bed. It's a little insulting to a quadriplegic. It's a little insulting to someone who has paralysis. Maybe she'd feel a little different if Peter walked into the room, (laughs) right? Because he's speaking these words, this command, and it's implying that the grace is going to be given to do exactly what you're being commanded to do right now. What you could not do on your own, Jesus Christ is supplying. That's what he is feeling right now. And I think it's pretty safe to say, you can decide if you agree with me or not. I think it's pretty safe to say that for Aeneas, he's never been so happy to be told to make his bed. I think he's thrilled at this point. to be, Me? Make my bed on my own? And I bet those caregivers who have been making his bed for him for the last eight years are like, hallelujah! <laughs> Aeneas is going to make his own bed, but it is a miracle that he's able to do this and Immediately, he rose. How stunning this is. Now, what are the results of Aeneas being healed? What's the point of this first spectacle that happens at Lydda? Verse 35. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon, the surrounding area, saw him and they turned to the Lord. They saw the spectacle and then they turned to the Lord. Imagine the kind of impact that this would have had on people. Again, people knew all about his situation. They know whatever accident it was that caused the paralysis. They knew what it was like before. They knew what it's been like for him for the last eight years. And then they watch him get up and make his bed. It would have stunned people. It would have left people in awe. It did exactly what it was designed to do. People turned to Jesus. That is, they believed in Jesus. The spectacle had its intended effect. It drew people's attention to the good news about Jesus that Peter was evidently preaching at that time. See, these spectacles are never meant to be an end in themselves. This is important to get. These spectacles are never meant to be an end in themselves, but to lead people to Jesus. And I think it's important to say here, that this spectacle in itself is a picture of the gospel. Consider this. The way Peter found Aeneas is like how Jesus found us. Laying there in our sin and helplessness as spiritual invalids. And think about this. And Jesus, finding us in that state, commanded us to do what we could not do in ourselves. That is, Repent and believe the gospel. We could not do that ourselves. And he says, believe, repent and believe. We could not do that in ourselves. 
But he supplied both of these as a gift of grace. Like Aeneas making his bed for the first time, we found ourselves thrilled to be able to respond to Jesus and his command the way that he has called us to, to be able to respond to the good news. Remember that moment when you first believe. It still stuns me, the thought that I, who I was before I knew Christ, would actually repent of my sins and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. It was only because he supplied the grace to actually do what he was calling to do, to actually respond the way that he is calling us to respond. We could never do it on our own. And if you're here today, and you don't have a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, if you haven't truly put your faith in him, you need to see how he sees you. He sees you as a spiritual invalid in desperate need of help. And that's why he came, is to supply that help. And what he is doing today is he is summoning you. He is calling you through this gospel, and he is calling you to repent of your sins, to turn away from your sins and turn toward Jesus Christ and to lay hold of him in faith, to lean your whole soul on him and trust him alone for salvation. And you need to pray today for him to give you the grace to truly repent and to truly believe. And if you call upon him in that way, he will not cast you out. He promises that he will never cast out those who come to him in this way. So come and don't linger any longer. Sometimes it takes an accident or something debilitating to help us see just how incapable we actually are. God mercifully healed and restored Aeneas to his full strength, giving mobility back to a needy paralytic. But he didn't heal Johnny. Think about that. He didn't hear heal Johnny Erickson Tata, no, but God met her in a different yet still altogether miraculous way. God used the diving accident to rescue Johnny from a life of vain pursuits and self-centeredness that she herself would say she would have walked in by leaving her in a wheelchair, by daily teaching her how weak she was so that she would have to daily lean harder on her Savior. The wheelchair became Johnny's best teacher in life. God has so spiritually transformed her that this woman, if you've ever just watched her testimonies and things like that, this woman glows with the love of Jesus Christ. She glows with a hope in heaven. She glows with uh, a hope that most able-bodied people do not seem to have, at least not at that degree. This is a woman marked by profound joy. God has so touched her in these ways that she serves her Savior and she serves people with disabilities all over the world right now. We were actually just in, when we were in California, we met with a local church there on the Lord's Day, Helix Bible Church there in California, and we gathered with them and some of the saints that we were talking to were sharing about how, I think it was their disabled son, got a video, a personal video sent from Johnny Erickson Tata to him to encourage him. She's done this to countless people. I was telling my kids some stories that I've heard from her uh, last night. We were just marveling at how God has used this woman because he left her in the wheelchair. I mean, think about that. 
Jesus has used Johnny in her wheelchair for 55 years, more than he ever did when she walked in her own strength. Painful things can happen that actually lead to more people seeing Jesus Christ. And if that is what we're all about, we'll be able to answer this question. What is a good life? Please think about that question. What is a good life? It's not about whether or not our lives are hard or easy. A good life is not about whether our days are spent on our own two feet or rolling along in a wheelchair. A good life is about whether or not our lives are drawing people's attention to Jesus Christ. That's a good life. If I've spent my life drawing attention to Jesus Christ, I will feel like my life has been well spent. How about you? That is what a good life is. Now, that is really the point of this first spectacle, is that it drew people's attention to Jesus Christ. And by the grace of God, many turned to the Lord. But before we leave this first spectacle and move on to another town and another spectacle, consider four secondary lessons that we can learn from this first spectacle, okay? Number one, we're meant to learn from the people who loved Aeneas sacrificially for those eight years. Now, I know they don't get a lot of press in this text here, but I think there's an implication here for us that I wouldn't want us to miss. These people, because obviously if he was left to himself, he wouldn't have survived, right? He wouldn't have survived by himself. But these people and their sacrificial care for him for eight years positioned him to be brought to a place to meet Jesus, to get the help that he needed from Jesus. And I want to give a special encouragement to those of you who are caring for people right now in your lives, people with significant needs. Maybe it's aging parents, or it's someone recovering from a surgery, or maybe it's someone with Alzheimer's or dementia, or something in between. It's difficult to sacrificially care for people, especially over extended periods of time. But just to see, it's worth it. It's worth it. You don't know when people are going to meet Jesus. You don't know if what the care you're actually doing to help sustain someone through the season they're in is the very thing that's going to allow them to have Jesus work more powerfully in their lives. So be encouraged and do not lose heart as you're caring for other people. Number two, learn from Peter's initiative in showing compassion. Learn from his initiative in showing compassion. People should not have to ask in order to activate your compassion. They shouldn't have to ask. Go find people. Take initiative. Put yourself out there. Don't wait for people to come to you all the time. Like Jesus, Peter went, as the text says, went here and there among the people. Right? In other words, he went and found them. Follow this example. Be among people. And when we are among people really intentionally, the needs become more obvious. And then we can step in in the name of Christ and meet those needs. Third lesson from this first spectacle, secondary lesson would be to learn from Peter's desire to give Jesus the credit. Learn from his desire to give Jesus the credit. 
Is there anything that you are stealing credit for right now in your life? Maybe even this morning. Maybe you're disappointed because someone's not acknowledging you and the great deeds that you have done. I mean, let's be honest. All of us are guilty of stealing glory and stealing credit from Jesus. But we don't often put it in those terms. But we do want to ask ourselves the question, how quick am I to tell people that I'm helping by you know, practical deeds or acts of godliness in their lives? How quick am I to tell people that really it's Jesus? That Jesus is the one doing that. Even the, the kindness that you're showing, you're sitting with them in their time of need and they're praising you for it. How quick are you to want to go, I'm here because I love you and because Jesus has put much love for you in my heart. I know that I wouldn't have it in myself. This is Jesus sitting with you ultimately. You see, you want to deflect the praise to him, not in some kind of check the box way, but from the heart to actually recognize the good that we do in our lives could never actually happen if it wasn't for Christ working through us. Christ bearing through, fruit through our lives. And so he deserves the credit and it should be our joy to give him that credit, to draw people's attention to Jesus. And here's the magical thing about that, is the more we in our lives learn to draw attention to Jesus Christ, the more satisfaction we actually feel in life, the more joy we actually feel feel in life. God has designed it that way, that when we pursue his glory, we actually find the most joy in this life. And so it does account a lot of times for our lack of joy, because we're not about his glory. So let's learn this lesson from Peter's initiative, from Peter's desire to give Jesus the credit. Aspire to grow in a growing track record of giving the glory to God. And fourth one, fourth one, learn to do things that you cannot do in yourself. Learn to do things that you cannot do in yourself. Like when Peter tells the paralytic to make his bed. God is constantly commanding us to do things that we are incapable of doing in ourselves. This literally happens dozens of times every single day if we are sensitive and our eyes are open to these realities. So often we will say to ourselves, well, I can't do that. And that's where it ends. But it's like, if it's something God's called us to, we might be able to say, I can't do that, but that shouldn't be where it ends the discussion, does it? Right? That shouldn't end the discussion. Instead, that should make us want to press in. It makes me think, to use another example and illustration from Johnny Erickson Tata's life, she would tell about how even right now at 72 years old, having spent now 55 years in this wheelchair and has had to walk with this, um, you know, this situation that she's in, this position she's in as a quadriplegic, she would say every morning is a battle. Her body's in a lot of pain. She's actually quite miserable to start every single day virtually, and she'll have a girlfriend maybe come and, and to sacrificially care for her and help her. And she'll hear the, you know, the coffee being made. And she's going, Oh, just leave me alone and go away. Cause she doesn't, it's just too painful to face the day and to have to get up. And she doesn't feel like being gracious at all. And she certainly doesn't feel like smiling at this sister that's coming to help her. And so she begins to pray, Lord, I don't want to be ungracious to this sister who is here to sacrificially care for me right now. But I don't even have a smile to give her. 
And so she'll literally pray, Lord Jesus, would you lend me your smile? And she, by the grace of God, gets the smile of Christ to give to her friend as she comes in. And for her, she would say, that was a hard-fought battle to even have that smile to give to the sister. She couldn't have done it in herself, but Jesus was commanding her to be gracious to the servant. And so she received it. This happens dozens of times every day. Think about it. Give you another practical example. Jesus tells, you probably put yourself in this category, Jesus tells naturally impatient people to show patience. He's commanded you to be patient or to be forgiving, for example. He's commanded naturally impatient people to be patient, to show patience because he intends to help that person be patient. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God loves and actually takes joy in working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. So he wants his people to lean upon him. And I just pray that we don't have to end up in a wheelchair to learn to lean upon Jesus Christ consistently. Oh, that all of us would take stock about this. We want to be a dependent people. And so we recognize we don't have to be so strong in this life and to be so perfectly able-bodied or able to do everything in ourselves. That's not what God's requiring. God is requiring us to recognize our weakness and to know that his grace is sufficient for us and that his power is made perfect in our weakness. And that when we are weak and recognize it, then we actually become strong. And so when we do that and we lean in upon him in prayer, his power begins to rest upon our lives. I look at Johnny Erickson Tata and her example that I've seen through the years, and I go, that is one of the weakest women on the face of the planet, but she's one of the strongest. Like the power of God rests upon her life. She didn't need to be able-bodied to have power on her life. She needed to recognize her weakness and lean upon Christ to have power on her life. And to that I say, Lord, give me a double portion of what you have put upon John Erickson. And to that God would say to me and to you, lean in for it. Lean in for it. Ask for it every single day in these dozens of opportunities that I give you. Now let's leave Lydda and travel 12 miles to the port city on the Mediterranean Sea known as Joppa. For there we will witness the second spectacle. A spectacle in Joppa. Look with me at verse 36. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. Now we're introduced here to Tabitha or her name in Greek, Dorcas. And some of you might say, look, I'm not trying to offend anybody, but uh, I would never name my daughter Dorcas. <laughs> but think what you may about her name. If her name lacks beauty, her character sure doesn't. And her character is what is being emphasized in this text in a big way. Yet it's this description of her character that we see in this text that's tinged with sorrow. Let's find out why. 
Reading verse 36 again. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of mercy. We're going to do a lot with this description here. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days, she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in the upper room. And so when we get this description of Dorcas's character, that she was full of good works and acts of charity, it reads a little bit like a line from a eulogy about a person that you loved. And you're sitting in at the funeral and the eulogy is being read and you're just imagining that. And it's one of those funerals where, you know, it's not just like one of those people that everybody goes like, oh boy, these things are barely true of that person, you know? Like it's one of those times where you're there and you're going, every word that they're saying is true and some. Like that's what you feel like at Dorcas's funeral as this eulogy is being read when they say, oh, she was filled with good, full of good works and acts of charity. And everybody's like, yeah, don't I know it? I was touched by it in my own life. Imagine everybody nodding along with the eulogy enthusiastically. Her life was cut short, yet it was full. Dorcas was not self-focused. She was servant-hearted. Dorcas was not idle, but active. Her life was not filled with good intentions, but with good works. The path of her life was littered not with IOUs, but with costly acts of charity. She's full of good works and acts of charity. Now, one question that I have is like, what's the difference between good works and acts of charity? We would usually just treat those kind of things as synonymous, but Good works, that's the broader category. When we talk about good works, we're talking about all kinds of different things done for people, out of a love for people, for the glory of God. That's the broader category when we talk about good works. Acts of charity are a subset of good works. And these are acts of mercy that come in the form of charitable giving or almsgiving, which was highly valued in, in Judaism. So acts of generosity, giving, and, and it kind of seems to, this phrase, acts of charity, seems to kind of indicate that Dorcas, Tabitha, if you like, was uh, a woman of means, probably had some wealth, yet she was not known for her wealth so much as for her generous love and her godly character. This is a happy and concrete picture of the kind of life that the Apostle Paul called for among those who are wealthy. He wanted those who are wealthy to give themselves to a certain kind of life. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 8 through 18 and 19, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. This is what Dorcas has done. She has laid hold of that which is truly life. She has lived a very open-handed life. She worked with willing hands. She was eager to meet the needs of others. I can't help but put her in the category of a Proverbs 31 woman. She put her hands to the distaff and her hands hold the spindle. She opens her hand to the poor and reaches out to the needy. She had weeping widows at her bedside, likely wearing the things that she made for them. This is the kind of woman that Dorcas 
was. This wonderful woman who had touched so many lives just died. See that again in verse 37. In those days, these days so filled with good works and acts of charity, in these days, she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in the upper room. So they washed her to prepare her body for burial. That's very typical, right? Nothing abnormal about that. But then they laid her body in the upper room. That's less typical. That's more unusual. And this has me wondering if this is an expression of hope for these believers there that she could be raised from the dead. I think that for a couple of reasons. Because one, there's Old Testament examples, for example, in 1 Kings chapter 17, where a prophet raises someone from the dead whose body is laid in the upper room. Sounds like an echo of that. But what, what makes me even think that this is even more probable, that they're hoping that she's going to be raised from the dead by putting her in the upper room, is the way the disciples send for Peter to come in haste. They send for Peter immediately to come. And Peter does come without delay. And Peter must have been moved by what he witnessed upon his arrival. Look with me at verses 38 and 39. Since Lydda was near Joppa, roughly 10 or so miles away, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. It's just so beautiful to see what Peter is witnessing as he comes into the room. The widows were likely the greatest beneficiaries of Dorcas's care. They were the ones that she targeted so much with her love. And all these widows had at least one token of her care, some tangible token of her care, something that they would prize for the rest of their lives. She loved people tangibly. And I can't, I can't help when I think about this phrase, she was full of good works and acts of charity. And then to think about how people are responding upon her death, how much grief people feel and how much love. And sometimes the more love you felt, even the more grief that you have in moments like that. And so I couldn't help but draw the parallel to ask the question, what do you think people would have felt like when they heard about the death of Jesus? I mean, think about all the multitudes who had been tangibly touched by his love. Imagine what they would have been feeling, what people would have been feeling in saying to one another when they heard about his death. Not everybody was there witnessing it, though many were. But, I mean, think about all the multitudes and crowds that followed him and came to hear him and be ministered to by him at different times. Imagine what those conversations would have been like when they heard that news. You could imagine the leper saying to his neighbor, he touched me when no one else would. You can imagine the bleeding woman saying, he healed me when no one else could. You can imagine the blind man saying, he traveled my road and he stopped the procession and he gave me my sight back. You can imagine the paralytic saying, he healed my body and my soul by forgiving my sins. You can imagine the crowd saying, he fed us till we couldn't eat another bite 
when we were so weary that we would have fainted on the journey if we had left at that time. You can imagine Nicodemus saying, he was willing to meet with me at night when I was too afraid to meet with him during the day. You could imagine Peter himself saying, he restored me three times after I denied him three times. Or the demoniac filled with a legion of demons. He took me out of the devil's torture chamber and clothed me and set my mind at peace. These examples don't even scratch the surface of the people that Jesus touched with tangible acts of love in his life. And all of these acts together are virtually nothing compared to what he was about to do. That is, he was going to go to the cross. And on the cross, he was going to carry out the greatest of all good works and the greatest and most generous of all acts of charity. That's what Jesus Christ did on the cross. If people wept for Dorcas, they could not shed enough tears for Jesus Christ because of the way he has loved people. I was thinking about a phrase that our brother Andy Johnson used during Bible study this past week. It had me really thinking, and it was so providential because we were studying an example in the book of Luke of Jesus raising the dead. And one of the things that Andy said that was sticking with me was that death is like one of the most irreversible things. Like if you could think about something that is irreversible, you would say death is irreversible. But here we're going to see that the most irreversible of things is about to be reversed. Read with me verses 40 and 42. But Peter, but Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and the widows, he presented her alive. (laughs) This is incredible. Could you imagine what that would have been like for that body of believers there? To have Dorcas given back to them in that moment. What's the result? of Dorcas being raised. What's the result of this second spectacle being carried out? Verse 42. And it became known throughout all Joppa and many believed in the Lord. Two different spectacles in two totally different towns with the same results. They turned, they believed in the Lord because the spectacle did what it was designed to do. That is, draw people's attention to the good news about Jesus Christ that the apostles have been preaching. And they turned to the Lord. They believed on the Lord Jesus. Like when Aeneas was made well, raising Dorcas from the dead drew people's attention to Jesus Christ with the result that many believed. Dorcas's resurrection, we need to get this, is a foretaste of the resurrection to come. Anytime we see a resurrection in history like that, it's meant to be a foretaste, a foreshadowing of the resurrection to come. Now, I would fault no one for wanting to witness more resurrections like this. 
This is simply awesome. I would be one to be like, hey, sign me up. I would love to see God raising more people from the dead. But we need to let this sign point us to a more ultimate resurrection. All of history is moving toward a general resurrection of all people, the just and the unjust. The unjust to eternal damnation and the just to eternal life. All of history is moving toward that point. And these resurrections in history, Jesus raising people shows that at the end of the day, he is actually going to raise everybody. And everybody will have to stand before him and give an account. And so we want to let this sign, this, this sign have its proper effect on us. And so the biggest question really we could ask is, where am I going to go once I'm resurrected? That's what everybody has to reckon with. It's not whether or not you're going to be resurrected. Ultimately, it's where are you going to go when you are resurrected from the dead? What matters most is not these temporal resurrections that happen, as powerful as they are, but the resurrection that's going to take place on the last day. You see, death, death is something that can be feared. And for many people, it should be feared. Because death is described as the last enemy. Death is described as something that's going to lead to the lake of fire, which is called the, the second death. But if we turn to Christ, we do not have to fear death. We know that death is a formidable enemy, but we can face death as believers with a confidence. Even a song on our lips, Oh death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? This is the confidence that every believer can have because we trust the one who said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me, though he die, he shall live. He shall not ultimately die, but he shall live with me forever. So in closing, as Christians, we have been deeply touched by the tangible acts of love of Jesus and have been given great peace by his resurrection from the dead and even these foreshadowings of the resurrection to come and given us such that it's given us assurance of our life beyond the grave that's going to be positive, life that's going to be in his presence, that's going to be eternal. Did I say in his presence? We need to be with him forever. This is what we get to look forward to because of Christ's death on the cross in our place. You have been given new life and strength in Christ. How will you use it? How will you use that strength? Use it to make much of Jesus Christ. Use it to go where the needs are in the power of the Holy Spirit. Leave a legacy like Dorcas, leave a legacy that reflects the character of Christ. Be busy with good things. Be beautifully generous with what you have. And may there be people, and this is my longing for you, and I'm going to pray for this for all of us. May there be people, a lot of them, at your funeral, cherishing the tangible acts of love that you have shown them. And may your life be a spectacle 
that draws people's attention to Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Dear Lord, that is our longing. We know that these spectacles happen, they take place in order to draw our attention to Jesus Christ. Lord, I thank you for drawing our attention to your son. I thank you for the spectacle that the cross was and that the cross can be proclaimed even in our day and that we can see it by faith. I thank you, Lord, that you have got our attention. For so many of us, you've got our attention and that you've spoken this good news to us through your son. Lord Jesus, we praise you for all of your tangible acts of love that has melted our hearts over and over again. But for no act of love do we thank you more than for the act of love that you showed on the cross. Oh, how full of good works you were and how filled with charity. We thank you for your generosity toward us that though you were rich, you became poor so that through your poverty, we might become rich in you. We thank you for your acts of love. We thank you for how you have loved us. We thank you for these spectacles that draw our attention and our gaze to you. And Lord, it's my prayer that you would continue to work in the hearts of your people and give us a deep-seated desire to want to draw people's attention to your son, Jesus Christ. Oh God, we confess that too often we are just focused on ourselves. Lord, some of us tremble because we realize that we are so self-reliant and so inward-focused so often that we fear that it would take being paralyzed and being put in a wheelchair just to recognize just how weak we actually are. May it not be so, Lord. I pray that you'd help your people to humble themselves. Help me to humble myself under your mighty hand to recognize our weakness, to not spend all days, all of our days just hating the fact that we're weak. Pray, Lord, that we would, in a sense, embrace our weakness, but lean into you, even for the little things in our days, so that your power would rest upon our lives. Lord, I pray that for FBC. I pray that your power would rest upon our lives, not because we're strong, but because we are weak and see it and cry out to you desperately for you to show your power in us. Lord, work in your people that which is pleasing in your sight. Encourage each one of the saints, Lord, in the things that you're commanding them to do. Help them not to look at a bare command and think, oh, I could never do that. Help them not to stop there, Lord. Help them to say that they can do all things through Christ which strengthens them. Lord, give power, fresh, renewed empowerment to your church so that we can fulfill the task you've given us to make more and maturing disciples of all the nations. Bless your people, Lord. I pray that you would give us a double portion of what we see in our sister Johnny Erickson Tata and other brothers and sisters that are disabled and are showing just how strong they can be when they lean on strength that's not their own. Work that in your people, Lord. And may we, the rest of this day and the rest of our lives and for all eternity, glory in your strength as we draw people's attention to you. In Jesus' name we pray.
见面。